You're listening to the Vice Chancellor's Hour, a ministry of Radio ABC 993 FM on the campus of African Bible University. I'm Jeremiah Pitts, a professor and administrator here at the African Bible University in Uganda. The purpose of Vice Chancellor's Hour is to provide biblical and theological teachings that are an extension of the ministry of the university. Have you ever wondered what the Bible has to say about leadership? And I don't necessarily mean only leadership in the church, although certainly that could be part of the topic, but leadership in general. You know, the Lord has taught us many lessons and given us many examples in Scripture about how leadership operates. And one thing the Scriptures don't do is give us a textbook answer for what leadership should look like. There's not an ABC 123 approach to leadership that we could just memorize. But what it has done is given us a lot of excellent principles and especially a lot of examples, some of which are very, very good examples, some of which are given to us precisely because they're bad examples and we should avoid them. And for the next few lessons, one of the things I want to do is look into leadership and look at it as a set of case studies. You may know a case study is when you look at something that's happened in real life and figure out what you can learn from it. The real world, you see, it changes a lot more, has far more complexity to it than the textbooks often do. And so those things that look at only theory, they're going to miss the point sometimes. And so it can be helpful to move away from just theory and look to see how things operate as a problem in the real world. Today's leadership case study is from Jonathan. Now, you may know from previous episodes that Jonathan is one of my favorite people in the Bible. He's a really extraordinary young man. He's the number two in his country at the time. He's the son of the king, and from a very young age, he is given a lot of responsibility. But also from a very young age, he finds out that he will never be the number one. Unlike many other people that we find in the Bible who get similar bad news, Jonathan does everything in his power to respect that and to make sure there's a way headed forward. For that reason, I think he deserves a lot of respect. If you compare him to other people, some quite famous like Esau, some perhaps less famous like Adonijah, who found out that they were not going to be the number one, even though on paper they looked like they had all of the qualifications. Well, Jonathan really shines as a, as a truly significant man of God. Let's turn to Scripture. We're going to focus on one particular passage of Scripture, but in this you'll see I will make allusions to a number of other passages in which Jonathan appears. Our verse for today comes from 1 Samuel chapter 14. We're actually looking at verses 6 and 7. This is God's word. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan finds himself in a situation where the people of God are being oppressed by a much stronger outside force. These people are referred to as the Philistines. 
And the Philistines of their day were much stronger than the Israelites were, were better armored than the Israelites were, and were actively seeking to oppress the people of God, even push them out of their own land. Jonathan finds himself in a situation where he sees an opportunity to attack some Philistines. The odds were not in his favor, that's for sure, and yet he was able to ultimately inspire a great degree of confidence and ultimately to win the day. By looking at the situation in this passage and the details of how it unfolds afterwards, I believe we can learn a lot about what it means to be a good leader. The first thing we learn is that a leader has a plan. Now, some of you may have come to believe, for some reason, that God doesn't want you to have a plan. Those people are out there, for sure, who think that maybe the best thing they can do is just go through life with no plan, and they believe, somehow, they're being very spiritual by thinking that way, as though not having a plan means that you're trusting God more. But the Scriptures are clear that actually having a plan is a very good thing to do. Let's just take a couple passages and look at them together. We might look, for instance, at Luke chapter 14, verse 28. It says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Here Jesus uses this example of planning. It is common wisdom. You might say it's something revealed to us by nature that Jesus puts his stamp of approval on, which is that if you want to do something well, that you ought to have a plan that this is from the Lord himself using it in Luke chapter 14. It's not just in the Gospels, like Luke, that we find this, but you find it in other places, like in the Proverbs. Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. Here we find that those who are diligent in their preparations end up having better outcomes than those who don't. So a good leader has a plan. In this story, we see that Jonathan has a plan. In fact, he tells his armor-bearer the specific method of attack, the specific mode of attack, and the expected outcome. He's going to attack uphill, which is very difficult to do, and he's going to attack against a greater force than he has, so he does not have the advantage, and yet he has a method that he believes will allow him to engage the enemy in a way that creates the better outcome. And so he shares this plan with the person that he's leading, and there's a better outcome in part because of the plan. Now, this is good for us as we're thinking about our futures. It is no good for a person to say, I'm not going to count how much money we have. I'm just going to trust the Lord. Nor is it good to say, I'm not going to think about my resources I'm just going to trust the Lord. Instead, we see from this very clearly that having a plan and executing that plan is one of the ways that we submit to God's will, that we believe He has given us a position and tools to use, 
and we ought to bring those things to bear. You shouldn't start building something if you don't know how much money you have. And you shouldn't fight a war if you don't know how many troops you have and how many troops the other side have. You ought to plan in advance. It's, it's sort of interesting to me because I think we all know that the best sports teams have a plan. They don't go in having no idea what will happen. Those who are involved in combat sports like boxing or mixed martial arts, those people go in with a plan. People who go into business, if they're wise, they go in with a plan. And so I don't know why the people of God believe that they should do anything without first having considered what the Lord has given them, what opportunities they have, and how it could be executed faithfully and wisely. If I may give you one piece of advice about that, it's that a leader plans based on what they know, not based on what they don't know. So you can see in this that there are things that Jonathan will say he doesn't know. He can't predict all of the outcomes or all of the positions or all of the people, but he can make adjustments and plans based on what he does know. And that's a wise plan, I think, for all of us. So, number one, a leader has a plan. Number two, a good leader trusts God for outcomes. A good leader trusts God for outcomes. Jonathan says, It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan says this because he realizes he does not have the advantage in this situation. He is going to be fighting uphill. He's going to be fighting against a force with superior numbers. And he is going to be fighting a force which has backup in other places. In fact, at that point, Jonathan doesn't even have the element of surprise. And yet he does have a tactic and a plan, but he doesn't primarily trust those. He first trusts God. That is, we often think of trusting God and having a plan as being things that are against each other. You have to choose one of them. But I think Jonathan demonstrates quite ably here that you actually should have both of them, that you should trust the Lord even with your plans, that whatever he has for you is good. And while you're here, you should use some of the things God has given you to make those plans but always trusting and respecting him for the outcomes. Proverbs says something very similar to this in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21, when it says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. You and I have ways that we think about things, and that's a good thing. Our minds are made for that, and it's God himself who made those. And yet we would be fools to think that we know things the way that God knows them. He knows everything from the beginning. Even before there was a beginning, God knew it. And so for us to believe that our plans will be the thing that changes the day or changes the mind of God, of course, is silly. Instead, we must submit outcomes to the Lord. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So even as you have a plan, as you're moving forward in your plan, you must understand that the success of the outcomes rests on the approval of God, that he is the one who's making your way forward, making your plan successful. A man who does not understand this will begin to be filled with pride 
and to believe in himself and his own abilities to create whatever he wants. When that happens, it is very clear that the Lord will be against you. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. The psalmist in Psalm 128.1 says this quite clearly for us, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. In both of those cases, whether it's the building of a house or the watching of a city, the key element isn't the person who is otherwise quite diligent in that they are laboring or staying awake, that is, they're doing their job, but the key element is, in fact, the Lord himself. Without the Lord working for us, our best laid plans will fail. So what is it a Christian should do? They certainly should plan, as we've already said, but they should submit their plans to the Lord, trusting him for outcomes. This is one of the reasons why a Christian leader is different from other types of leaders. It's because a Christian leader knows that his plans must be God's plans in order for his plans to succeed. And whatever our God ordains is right. So we also must learn to accept then what he has given us. It seems Jonathan does just that. The Lord may work for us. Does he know the mind of God? Of course he doesn't. But he knows that this God has promised good for his people, and that if the Lord is in it, it does not matter if the odds are stacked against them. In fact, the outcome is better than they possibly could have imagined. The people are overcome and terrified. So we have a leader who has a plan and a leader who trusts God for outcomes. We also find that a leader inspires confidence. One of the things that stands out most about this passage is the response of this man, his armor bearer. Now, if you know anything about warfare during this time, you know that the armor bearer was a very trusted position, someone who was close by to the person he was bearing armor for. In fact, in today's terms, we might think of them more closely as a type of bodyguard, that they were to be close by, providing close protection and the tools and implements of warfare, as well as someone to watch the back of the important person. This means they were with the leader a lot, and they got to see them under times of unbelievable stress. And what we see in this is that the person who kind of knows Jonathan the best, knows what he's like in combat the best, and has spent the most time with him, has unbelievable confidence in Jonathan. He says, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Remember what situation these men are in. Jonathan and this armor bearer are going into combat alone. They're going uphill. They're going against a superior force who knows that they're coming and are prepared for them and are better armed than them. And so Jonathan, you see, is putting the armor bearer in a situation of great danger. What then inspires such great confidence in the armor bearer? I think by inference, we can know it's because the armor bearer has seen Jonathan operate. He knows him well, what kind of man he is, where his beliefs lie, and how he operates. 
But it's not that alone. It also quite clearly is that Jonathan bore the responsibility for his decisions. That is, Jonathan did not send the armor-bearer into battle without him. He, as the leader, was willing to bear the responsibility for his decisions. Not only was he willing to bear responsibilities, but he put himself in the front. That is, he put himself in a position where he also was at risk, I think actually more at risk than the armor-bearer himself. Jonathan was the type of leader who was willing to get into the dangerous situation to bear the responsibility of the outcomes of his decisions. Leaders who try to push the responsibility for their decisions to push the outcome or consequences of their decisions off on others do not inspire confidence. When we risk others without ourselves bearing any responsibility, you will find very quickly that people will fail to trust you. And they will do that because they realize you're willing to sacrifice them without yourself making any sacrifices. The armor bearer here says something I've told my people before. I've led people quite a bit, and my people, as I've found over the years, have often been quite loyal to me and to my department or my university and the work that I'm doing. And yet, <laughs> if I asked them to risk their lives, I wouldn't expect a single one of them to say, Behold, I'm with you, heart and soul. And the reason behind that is I've never put them in situations knowingly where they've been at risk, and certainly I've never put myself in a situation knowingly to put myself at physical risk on their behalf. And so this would be a new and a different situation. And so I'm personally filled with a bit of awe at Jonathan as a leader, because this man who is with him, who knows him, who has seen him under stressful circumstances and knows the type of situation they're in right then, he wants Jonathan to do whatever Jonathan believes is right, because as Jonathan does it, he knows Jonathan would not put himself in a situation that he would not also put his follower in as well, that we could trust that Jonathan will bear the responsibility for his decisions. Fourthly, we find that a leader knows when to submit to authority. Now, this may be a bit of a surprise to you because when we think of leaders, people often think of somebody who's at the top. But there are various forms of leadership, and it's very important for us to know that. There are forms and there are levels of leadership. And there really isn't anyone on planet Earth who is the absolute top. Everybody everywhere is accountable to someone to a greater or lesser degree. There is no person who is a ruler completely unto themselves. And most of us in our lives will have authorities over us. Think of it this way. If you're the head of your organization, say you're head of a church, you're head of a school, you're head of a business, do you not operate within a country? I mean, of course you do. And in that country, there's someone who has civil authority over you. And of course, you have to think about most of us are, of course, not going to be the very top of our organizations. Most people in most places work for someone else, and they may have a great degree of leadership or authority, but they do still work for someone else. And so we see in this story of Jonathan that a leader knows when to submit to authority. Well, what happened after the fight? Jonathan and his armor bearer go into this fight, and they win, and it's a huge victory. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, it tells us that Jonathan and his armor-bearer have a complete victory. They actually completely run off and kill the enemy. 
And in that, a lot of other Israelites see what's going on and they want to get involved. And unfortunately, Saul does not appropriately seize the moment. In that, he has told his people they need to keep pursuing without eating. And in the process of things, they found out that someone from their ranks has eaten, but they don't know who. And Saul sets tribe against tribe and person against person until it comes down to Jonathan. Now, Saul has said if anyone eats, he should die. And Jonathan, seeing that he is the guilty party and that the king has issued a death threat against him, rather than hosting a rebellion, even though he did it unknowingly, Jonathan says, I did it. I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. That's a hard thing that Jonathan submits to, but he does submit to his king having set an edict against the person who eats and him having broken that edict, had broken that law, that command. He did. He broke it. Now, he did it without knowledge, and yet he could be said to have broken the law. And in that, the death sentence his father hastily put against him, well, Jonathan accepts it. He doesn't think of himself as being the son of, of, he doesn't think of himself as being the son of Saul and therefore above accountability. He doesn't think of himself as being an awesome general and therefore worthy of passing over. He thinks instead, if I've done the wrong thing, if I truly deserve to die, well, here I am, I'll die. You know, this is really tough for people, especially as they begin to actually make great contributions to an organization or whatever. They begin to think of themselves in a way as above the rightness or the wrongness, above the rules and regulations, because they begin to see that they have the ability to manipulate the outcomes and do it in their own favor. Now, of course, most people always believe that they would do that only in a case where it was very good. You can see how Jonathan would say, This is an unjust law. It's an unjust requirement. And in fact, you held your people back. But instead, he says, I'm the one who did it. If I have to die, let me die. If I broke the rule and you say the penalty of that is death, go ahead and do it. And what in the end saves Jonathan? Interestingly, it's the loyalty of the people. That is, the people themselves look at Jonathan and they realize that Jonathan actually is a better option than Saul is. Saul has the position but Jonathan is the one who's executing his role well. That is, his submission to authority actually demonstrates his goodness, and that's the very thing that keeps the people on his side. This is what it says. The people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So, The people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Imagine the the scenario here where the father puts a death penalty out there against an unknown person, and it turns out to be his own son. But it's not the father who rescues the son, it's the people who rescue the son. And they do it precisely because they love him. They have loyalty towards him because they can see that God is working with him, and they themselves resist the unjust edict pronounced against the son. So we've seen in this so far that leader has a plan, a leader trusts God for outcomes, a leader inspires confidence, a leader knows when to submit to authority, and finally, a leader prepares for the next generation. 
Now, you and I know that no leader's time is forever, that each one of us have an amount of time ordained for us by God himself, and that no one really knows when their time is up. It's for God alone to tell each and every one of us. And yet each one of us, well, I sometimes tell students, we have a clock. Each one of us carries a clock with us. We know when the clock started, but we don't know when it is going to end. And so what should we do? One way I often answer this in general terms is, as Paul's teaching, that we should redeem the time. That is, we shouldn't waste it. We should save it and make good use of it, make good use of the time. I think Jonathan demonstrates this for us quite well when it shows us that he, as a leader, prepared for the next generation. No leader's time is forever, and Jonathan had to know this. He knew that God had ordained that David would be the king. Now, again, on paper, Jonathan seems like a fantastic candidate. It's not that there was anything wrong with Jonathan, as far as we can tell from any of the stories that were given. He was a good man. He was a man of honor and integrity. He was someone who submitted to God's will and had a plan as God had taught him to do, who inspired confidence in the people around him, who submitted to authority, even when it was no doubt difficult to do. And yet, even though Jonathan had been leading men since he was a young man, and even though his father was the king, Jonathan had every earthly right, you might say, but he did not have the divine right. That is, he did not have the blessing of God to be the next king of Israel. And far from fighting against it, he actually submitted to it. And in that, he loved David, even though David was the one who would be the king. If you think about Esau, Esau has problems with his brother Jacob, even though that's his brother. And yet Jonathan helps David even though they're not blood relatives. What was Jonathan's concern in all this? Well, for one thing, of course, he wanted to do what God would have him to do. But Jonathan also had concern for the future of his family. That is, he knows if Saul's not king and David is, he needs to take some interest in the future of his own people. So you might think of it this way, the last thing Jonathan does before he dies, or before we see him die in the scripture, is to protect the rightful heir, that's David, to make a covenant with him, and the content of that covenant is that there would be protection for his, that is, Jonathan's family. Jonathan is thinking about the future and preparing for the next generation. He's not wasting his time trying to undo his own situation, but instead he's planning for a future for his very family. The content of the covenant he makes with David is seen in 1 Samuel chapter 20, even though the last covenant he makes with him is 1 Samuel chapter 23. The content of it is that David will look after Jonathan's family. Jonathan is going to look after David, and David will look after Jonathan's family. And we see later on in the David story that it is that agreement that Jonathan makes with David which spares the last remaining elements of Jonathan's family. That is, that covenant and those efforts he made to protect David in turn protect his own offspring. A leader prepares for the next generation. Well, I hope this has been a helpful case study for you as we look at Jonathan, the complexities of his life. A leader who leads, I think, in very difficult and trying circumstances and yet does it very well. Until next time, I hope you've enjoyed this lesson on leadership from the Bible.
You're listening to the Vice Chancellor's Hour, a ministry of Radio ABC 993 FM on the campus of African Bible University. I'm Jeremiah Pitts, a professor and administrator here at the African Bible University in Uganda. The purpose of Vice Chancellor's Hour is to provide biblical and theological teachings that are an extension of the ministry of the university.